And welcome to the Department 12 podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ben Butina, and I am joined in this episode by Dr. Mindy Shoss. How are you tonight, Mindy? I am good, thanks. How are you? I'm doing great. So, Mindy, you are an associate professor of psychology at University of Central Florida? That's correct. So, a lot of our listeners, including myself, would probably love to be where you are right now in Central Florida, because <laughs> as we record this, it's November and... Uh, not such a kind or mild November for those of us in the Northeast or Midwest. So congratulations on sunshine. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks. Yeah, just got maybe into the 50s here and, and they see people with big, heavy winter coats. <laughs> it's pretty funny. <laughs> All right. But as long as the Waffle Houses are still open, everything will be fine. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So uh, we're here to talk about a paper uh, that you published not long ago called The Joint Importance of Secure and Satisfying Work, Insights from Three Studies, and it was published in the Journal of Business and Psychology. Congratulations on your publication. Thank you. And we're going to do things a little bit backwards compared to how we usually do them on the show. So I want to start with what did you find in your research? So if you could just give us sort of a thumbnail abstract of, hey, here's what we found in this paper. Thanks. Okay. Yeah. So um, this is actually one of my my favorite papers because I, I really wanted to use it to try to make a, a broader point about what it means to have a good job and the types of jobs um, organizations should create if we want to have a productive and healthy society. So I guess the thumbnail version of this is we found that job insecurity and job satisfaction function um, in an interactive sense to impact a variety of outcomes. So basically, you know, if you want the best outcomes ranging from low turnover to um, commitment, things like that, uh, you really want people to be satisfied and secure in their jobs. Very cool. Uh, and, and you know, something that kind of stood out to me is, um, you know, you drew on the uh, theory of, of sort of resource conservance to, to, to predict that, um, the effects of job insecurity and satisfaction on well-being. Um, I, I'm, I'm sure I'm mangling this, but the, the, the short, short version, which I know is going to be way oversimplified, but if, if somebody has a high degree of job satisfaction, so they really like their job, then that job insecurity hits them harder than somebody with low job satisfaction. Is that a fair summary of at least one of the findings? Yeah, that's exactly it. Yeah, so that's cool. And I think that um, you know, especially for students listening and you're saying, you know, what good is theory? <laughs> uh, that is a great example because intuitively, many of us, including myself, maybe would have predicted the opposite, that if you feel like you like your job better, uh, then you're going to be less impacted by this sense of job security. And uh, based on this theory, your prediction was exactly the, the, the reverse of that. And it, it turned out that the evidence that you found supported that. So, the reason that I asked you on the show and that you so kindly agreed to be on is less about what the paper found. I'll give a link to the paper, obviously, in the show notes, and I'll encourage everyone to read it, but more about telling the story of how this paper came to be. Um, I think this is sort of a mystery to uh, many listeners, particularly those who are students now or just thinking about graduate school. Uh, you know, you see these papers published. They look, you know shining and perfect when you see them published in a, in a journal, but real life is, is kind of messy. So take us back to when this was first a germ 
you know, an idea in your mind or in someone else's mind, like when was the first time you can recall being interested in this topic and thinking, Hey, maybe we should do a paper on this. Yeah. Yeah. This paper has had a a little bit of a windy path, um, I guess, like most papers. But um, so this idea really started out, um, I I guess, in my mind, as I was reading a call for papers on the uh, United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. So one of the UN Sustainable Development Goals is on decent work. So I was curious about, okay, what is decent work? And as I read about it, they, you know, the International Labor Organization, they have different categories and people were putting together different surveys and things like that. And their discussion of job insecurity and job satisfaction um, were completely separate. And I thought, well, it's a little bit weird because these things to me seem like they might operate in conjunction, um, kind of like we were talking about that people who really like their jobs might actually be the worst hit by job insecurity. Um, and that's, that's a particular challenge now because you just see so much job insecurity um, across a whole variety of industries. Um, so actually the idea kind of percolated, but um, fortunately I had access to the um, international social survey program data set, which is publicly available. You just um, download it. So I, uh, uh, responses from 30 plus different countries, things like that. So um, I had the data set and I just quickly tested it and found support uh, for this idea. Um, again, that job insecurity is worse for those who are most satisfied with their jobs. Um, so at that point, I, you know, I was kind of curious because job satisfaction is this holy grail in IO psychology kind of, right? We think, well, you know, oh, people are satisfied, everything's great. Um, and of course, our research is that maybe that's not the case. Um, so um, Brad Brummel um, at University of Tulsa um, is a colleague and friend of mine. So I reached out to him because he studies job attitudes. And I was curious whether, you know, anyone had really published anything or talked about um, that that the impact of job satisfaction on outcomes might actually be moderated. Um, so turns out Brad and I kind of toyed with this idea for a while, and then we wrote it up for the special issue um, call, uh, ended up getting rejected. Um, and then um, we, we, at that point, we had didn't have all the studies that you see in the, in the full paper, but at that mm-hmm. point, um, you know, we kind of, uh, took a step back. We thought, well, you know, maybe we need more data. Let's see. Um, and, um, reached out to Tahara Probst and Lacey and Jing, who also do job insecurity research. And, um, we know each other from many PSYOP symposiums on, on job insecurity. So I just emailed them saying, Hey, you know, do you have job insecurity and job satisfaction in your data sets? Um, and they did in, in a, um, study that they had just collected. So um, turns out they were able to replicate that finding. Um, and then they suggested actually expanding it to um, different, uh, some additional outcomes. Because at that point, uh, we were pretty much just focused on um, turnover um, and uh, counterproductive behavior. So kind of just a limited range of outcomes uh, in job search. Um, but they really suggested adding sort of the stress and exhaustion and commitment, more more of the emotional outcomes, which I think made the paper a lot more interesting and kind of robust. 
So yeah, from there, yeah we sent it to JVP and yeah. <laughs> That's great. So I want to I want to backtrack a little bit and, and and make a few stops along the path here. One thing I wanted to point out to the listeners is that you know the origin of this study, uh, you know, based on on uh, what many just shared, was a call for papers. So it wasn't like you know you were just sitting around meditating, thinking about hey, what can my next thing be about? Uh, there's a call for papers, and it got you thinking about something, and you were able to get into a publicly available data set because of your your quantitative methods background. You were able to do some exploratory analysis on that, and that's what got you going down on that path. So I just wanted to point that out that you know having that skill, that that quantitative analysis skill, uh, and finding an insight in that data that that presumably no one had found before was was a key part of this. The second thing that really jumped out at me was how much of this, the existence of this paper um, is really the result of the network that you've built. You know, you talked about reaching out to, to Brad at first um, and then, you know, adding the other, your other two co-authors who each brought something different into the paper. And it sounds like, you know, it wasn't like you looked them up in some directory of people that were interested in the same things you are. These are people that you know because you've presented with them or or been on panels with them at, you know, PSYOP or, uh, you know, other things. So you just kind of know who to call, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, the, the network is important and certainly takes um, – it does, it's not built overnight, I guess um, I would say that, especially for, for students um, who probably feel the pressure to go to PSYOP and, you know, make 100 contacts and things immediately. Um, but yeah, we had presented in, um, in the same sessions uh, multiple times. Um, actually, I think I met Brad when I was a graduate student at um, the IOOB conference, um, and here's a contact from, from way back then. So, yeah, it definitely takes um, some time to build, but um, just getting to know people, getting to know what they're interested in. Um, when I author papers with colleagues, I always try to find people who um, kind of can complement what I can bring. So mm-hmm. these are people either with different data or just different knowledge in different areas because I think that just makes for for a more interesting um, study and, and a fun collaboration. Yeah, and I think that that is the co-authoring process, the mechanics of it is another aspect that, that might puzzle people that haven't done it before. Now, the way you describe it, it sounds very clean, like, oh, you know, you know, this person brought this idea and this person had this data set. I think that when people look at a paper that's written by, you know, like in this case, four people, what they wonder about is like, how do you actually manage four people writing a paper? Like, how is it that four people can work on one document? Does that question make sense? Yeah, yeah, it does. Um, right. It kind of you know rings a bell of the, the college team projects, which, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> which never seemed to go well. But um, <laughs> I found collaborating in, uh, <laughs> in, in academia to, to work a little bit better. Um, for me, I mean, I tend to, um, especially in this paper and others, tends to work well to really um, spend time talking sort of strategy with the whole team. Mm-hmm. So um, we spent uh, com- conference calls and um, quite a few discussions talking about how you want to frame the paper. You know, we debated, is this a 
job insecurity paper? Is this a job satisfaction paper? Mm -hmm. Um, There's a million ways of framing it. And then, um, yeah, what's the theory? So we just sort of talked it out um, so many times that then, um, so I, and then it became, you know, kind of straightforward about, you know, what the approach we're going to take and then how, how we're going to write it. Um, so, you know, I wrote a lot of the framing piece and some of the theory piece, obviously based on those discussions and then people sort of filled in in different spots. So Brad wrote a big chunk about job satisfaction because that was his area of expertise. Um, obviously the studies that, um, Tara and Lisa and added, they wrote up those whole studies. Um, yeah. Yeah. So you kind of, <laughs> yeah. Thanks for sort of flushing that out. Um, I, I think one of the, you know, one of the takeaways maybe from that is that, you know, to call back to something that we talked about at the very beginning of the, of the story is that it was as much about building and, and working with these relationships as it was about the content. You, you know, really knowing your stuff is kind of a given at that level, but being able to work well with people is what made this paper a reality. Is that fair to say? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I would, I would absolutely agree. And I think, um, I think there's a lot of value also in just spending time talking ideas with an authorship team. Cause sometimes I see my students, they're just so willing, they go very quickly to sort of a divide and conquer. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you end up with a paper that sounds like it's been written by five different people. Um, <laughs> and you know, I think the reason this one was so successful is I really kind of toyed with the idea and toyed with, you know, what, what's our sort of message here and what points are we trying to get across? Um, and I, I think that's helpful not only in just the writing process, but also just in, in kind of making a successful paper. You know, the goal of our articles, um, besides getting them published, of course, is to, is really to, um, to make people think about something in a different way. Um, so, practicing and figuring out how we're going to do that um, as a group is is one step forward towards writing something that will hopefully make people who read the article um, think about these things differently than maybe mm-hmm. they had before. Yeah. And, you know, you can really tell, you know, based on the story that you told how this paper evolved over time, you know, based on those conversations and how it became, you know, to, to your point, something that that's going to make the reader think. And, and I encourage everyone listening to, to read the paper and it, and it will make you think. Um, for my last sort of question, I want to go back to the happiest topic I can think of, and that's rejection. So early on in this process, um, you and Brad had, had written up um, a submission and it was rejected. And I think that that is another area that for, you know, a new graduate student or someone considering this is, is, is kind of intimidating. Uh, this, you know, by the time you get to a doctoral program, for example, it tends to be a fairly high achieving type of person. Maybe they've gotten through with straight A's. It's just, you know, we're not used to rejection, but rejection is part of public publication. So I just kind of wonder, like, when you got that rejection, what was it like for you? Are you at the point where it's like, well, it was no big deal or it was like, oh, that really ruined my day. What was it like for you when you got that? 
Yeah, I still get get bummed out by rejections, um, yeah. especially papers or I think it's a cool idea. Um, so, or you see comments and you're like, I could have fixed that. Um, but yeah, I mean, I try, I try to take it in stride um, and certainly try to help my students take it in stride. And, and again, going back to the idea that, you know, the point of writing this is to really is to to change thinking or to convince someone of an idea and sort of, if it gets rejected, that means it, it wasn't there. Um, we didn't quite do that. So we need to step back and think about, go back again to, okay, what are we trying to accomplish? Where is it getting lost in translation? Um, what are the issues or do we need more data to make this more convincing or things like that? So I try not to take it, personally, <laughs> um, even though it's hard sometimes. Yeah. yeah, these are your ideas that are out there. And, yeah. you know, but I just try to think of, well, maybe, maybe I just didn't, didn't say it convincingly enough or yeah. clearly enough or something like that. Um, so, yeah, yeah, I think, um, I think it was my advisor, maybe who, who said sort of every puppy has a home. Um, so you just kind of keep tooling at it and, Try to be try to figure out what the reviewers were reacting to um, and go from there. Yeah. I like that. Every puppy has a home. So I, um, I I think that's maybe a good point to, to, to end on is that, you know, when you're looking at these papers, every one of those author names that you see is, you know, a real human being and the the rejection does hurt. I I don't think that there's any way that, you know, I, I think it gets easier over time, but it does hurt and you, you take a little while to lick your wounds and everything, but your attitude of, Hey, you know, this is what peer review is about. We're going to take that feedback and we're going to make this better. And I'm sure glad that you did because I think you wrote a great paper and uh, I'm going to include a link to that in the show notes. And I want to thank you uh, for spending some time with us to tell us the story of this paper. Oh, thank you so much. It's, it's fun.